0: Two and a Half Admins, Episode 72. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, just a quick plug for BSDCAN 2022.
1: Yep, yeah, that'll be uh, June 1st to 4th. We're still somewhat hopeful. That can be in person. But the call for proposals closes January 19th. So get your uh, ideas in before that. And uh, they'll let you know by February which talks will be at the conference. Cool. Well, link in the show notes as
0: usual. So the big news in our world on New Year's Day was that if you're running an exchange server, you might have some problems.
2: Yeah, once again, Microsoft decided that nobody will ever overflow an integer value. Why is it a signed
1: integer? What what does Microsoft love about signed integers so much? They use them for everything, and it always runs into the problems. It's like, you're never going to have a negative number for what this thing was going to be, so why have anything other than an unsigned integer And that would have been good
2: until... 2040 instead, because signed it was the default integer type when whoever was sloppily writing that code to begin with. I suppose. So it turns out
1: that uh, if you have a Microsoft Exchange server, when mail comes in and gets queued, it then goes into the virus scanner. Except for the virus scanner would crash because it's loaded its new definitions, which had a version number of 2201010001. You know, 2022 January 1st. But it turns out you can't convert that number into a long, which is a 32-bit integer, because it is just a little bit bigger than the maximum allowed value. A 32-bit signed integer has a maximum value of 2147000000 blah, blah, blah. But 22.01.01.0001 1, happens to be 50-something million higher than that, and so is not a working number. And so the virus scanner would crash and all your email gets stuck in the queue waiting for the virus scanner to uncrash. And
2: then it would just immediately crash again when the service gets restarted. So there's a couple of obvious callbacks here, both of them very much applicable to Microsoft. The first, of course, is Y2K. It's essentially the same problem. Uh, You had a date that was larger than anybody planned for when they were figuring out their hacky shortcut way of storing a date to begin with. And the other callback that I want to make is, you know, way back to the days of Windows 95, A lot of people didn't realize this because Windows 95 was so good at just crashing on its own. But if through some miracle you managed to keep a Windows 95 system running for, I believe it was 48 days, it was guaranteed to crash on the 48th day because there was a counter that would overflow when you had reached that many seconds of continuous operation of Windows 95. And as soon as it overflowed, you got a panic and the whole thing would just, uh, I don't think you even got a blue screen. I think it just died. But of course, you don't run into many people who actually witnessed that happen or knew that was why it happened when it did, because who could manage to keep a Windows 95 box up and running for 48 straight days?
1: But you mentioned that, and I've seen the same thing happening five or so years ago with a major airplane manufacturer. The engine management system would overflow a counter it had that ticked once every 100 milliseconds, I think. And when it got to the number every 200 or days, then it would just freak out and crash. And then there was another one where the same thing, but I think it was 10 milliseconds. So there's an FAA directive. If you have this model of major airliner, you must reboot it every 23 days because on the 24th day, kablooey, while you're flying it. On the 23rd day of flying, my airplane gave to me. <laughs> and of course, Microsoft's quick fix for this problem is here's a PowerShell script that will delete all of the old definition files so that. We can basically install an older versioned one and they versioned it as twenty-one, twelve, thirty-three to represent January of 2022. They made it December 33rd of 2021. And it turns out that number is still small enough that it doesn't overflow the integer.
2: Of course, this just all raises the question again of why are you trying to cram a date into a, a single integer anyway? There are so many Perfectly valid data types to store dates into. I mean, you could be using a decimal data type, you could be using a string, you could be using, God forbid, the actual date <laughs> data type.
1: In C, I don't think there's a date data type, but um, even Linux uses an int to store the date. It just counts seconds since 1970, and that'll work fine until about 2038 when it'll overflow. Although, Almost all of our computers are 64-bit now, and so we have a big enough number. It's not an issue. But worse, they're using this for a version number. I understand using the date and a and a revision number together as a version number, and that's fine. But they, if they had done just three decimal places of revisions per day instead of four, this would still work. But because they allow for 10,000 screw-ups per day when releasing virus definitions, they ran out of space. Whereas if they only allowed 1,000 new versions of the virus definition per day, it wouldn't have broken.
2: And I would just like to point out that in fairness, I mean, yeah, you're correct. If you're using 32-bit unsigned ints, Unix time will overflow in 2038. But it's 2022, and we've all known that and been aware of it and talking about it for 22 years at least now. And we know what we're going to do to deal with it when it does happen. Uh, As opposed to just being like, oh, hey, we weren't really thinking about it, but, you know... (laughs) We were cramming a human-readable date into a single integer for some strange reason and appending a serial into it to all get it into the same value. And we had no idea when that was going to present a problem until all of a sudden everybody's mail server broke overnight and we went, oh. Yeah.
1: Also, like, how does Microsoft not have a CI lab that just always runs with a date six months from now just to see if stuff breaks? Or, you know, set it to 2025, although then you'll have problems with certificates or something. But it seems like something they could test. There was a similar bug to the uptime thing in FreeBSD at one point. When we changed from GCC to Clang, it changed the way the undefined behavior happens when the number rolls over. And it caused it to start crashing when we switched to Clang. And so we've changed it so that when the system boots, it's five minutes away from overflowing as the initial value instead of zero. So that if the bug ever comes up again, people will notice it right away because their system will crash very quickly instead of after 24 days or whatever it is.
0: I saw you tweeting, Jim, that you didn't actually have to deal with this then.
2: No, I did not. I've avoided on-prem exchange for well over a decade now with great unease. I'm not happy about it, but I've mostly recommended that small biz folks and uh, you know, a a good number of of mid-size Just go with Office 365, because the reality is that most of the business people want to use Outlook. And if you want to use Outlook, Outlook is not an email client. Outlook is an Exchange client. So you should be using Exchange on the back end. And it's far better to run Office 365 than to run your own on-prem Exchange, because that means so many problems you don't have to deal with. Like, even if you don't have any technical issues whatsoever with running a mail server, Just dealing with like IP reputation is an absolute nightmare. And there is a world of difference, not on a technical front, but just purely in an organizational policy and getting people to understand front between well, that organization's IT guy said that we're screwing up and our IT guy said that they're screwing up, but I just want to get the mail through. That's what happens when you're both doing on-prem. But when one of you is doing Office 365 and your email isn't getting accepted by the other side, then you get to just say, those dipshits are blocking Microsoft. What do you want from me? And like, it's done. You don't have to explain anything else to your C-level. They're like, what the hell? And they're mad at them and it's off your plate and nobody's blaming you. So it's kind of hard to argue with.
0: Well, this leads into something else I wanted to talk to you, too, about. There was a tweet thread by Chris Seiberman, and it's his gloomy sysadmin take that it's no longer possible for ordinary organizations to operate a quality mail infrastructure themselves.
2: The only thing I take issue with there is his use of the word quality. His argument is that the vast majority of organizations and technical folks just they don't have the resources necessary to build a mail system as, and again, he uses the word high quality as Gmail or Office 365. And I agree with his premise that it's very rarely a practical thing to run your own mail server at a small or even relatively large organization. When Gmail and O365 are out there and available, it's just not usually going to be a win. I do take issue with the word quality to describe it, though. I don't think it's that hard to build a very reliable, very high performance, very effective mail server. I've got several of them. The issue is just that a it's obviously it's going to be more work than paying what now is it's it's a pretty reasonable amount of money. I mean, if you just want mail, it costs you basically five bucks a mailbox a month. Whether you want to go uh, Google or whether you want to go Office three sixty five at you know a small to mid scale. And the amount of time that you put into managing an on prem mail server is pretty quickly going to add up to more cost than that in labor. And it also then just, you know, that's your labor is tied up and you can't do other things. But that's before you even get into what we were talking about earlier, which was the whole issue of network reputation. And everything with email is like, you know, Spider Man pointing.jpg. Things get blocked because they're detected as spam. More frequently and worse, they get blocked because somebody who is running an on-prem, who really is not competent to do it, gets users complaining about spam, which frequently isn't even spam at all. It's like mailing lists they literally signed up for. (laughs) But they call it spam and and complain it winds up in their mailboxes and demand the admin do something about it. The admin then is like, okay, well, fine, I'm just going to randomly like black hole a ton of subnets. And say, look, I'm doing this, and that's taking away the problem. And you get caught up in one of those black holes, and now you've got to deal with that admin and be like, you black hole my subnet, and that won't work, and you got to take me out of it. And they refuse to admit they've done anything of the sort, and now you're, you're right there in that whole Spider-Man pointing, and there's not really a good way out of that because – neither one of your C-suites, you know, at the sender's company or the receiver's company really gives a crap about that. They just want to be able to send the freaking email and they don't want any part of the technical argument. You may or may not have one or the other that's convinced that either the other side's IT department is incompetent or their own IT department is incompetent or vice versa, but none of that is actually helpful and actually resolves the problem. Whereas again... If you've got your mail hosted at Google or you've got your mail hosted at Microsoft, you'd be like, "Eh, they're blocking Google. What do you want? They're blocking Microsoft. What do you want? Oh, well, <laughs> all right. My guy's an idiot. I'm going to go talk to him. And they go talk to him. And the local guy can't argue with the C-suite the way that he would argue with you and just do the whole Spider-Man pointing JPEG thing. The C-suite says, what the hell are you doing? You block Google, fix it. And they fix it. And your mail goes through. You can't replicate that just being, you know, some person, however technically competent, who's running the email for one or even a bunch of small organizations. You don't have that clout to just be the instant decider at the C-suite level. For a bit of context,
1: Chris Seiverman's assistant at the University of Toronto, they probably many tens of thousands if with alumni, probably hundreds of thousands of mailboxes. It gets a little crazy at that scale. But it's one of the types of organizations that's been doing their own mail since like the 90s and suddenly they're like it's getting to the point where it's not really possible for us to do this anymore and we're going to have to use something like Google or Microsoft and ick.
2: The network delivery issues are the real bugaboo there. Just serving 10,000 concurrent users email is not hard. I have done it as a single person managing an email infrastructure for, ten, for tens of thousands of concurrent users. And the technical part is not hard. What gets hard is the fact that it's not just tech, it's politics dealing with other people's networks and what they're doing with what they accept or don't accept. And they make bad decisions all the time. And you've got to have that hammer of God that you can bring down and say, you blocked Google, you're a dumbass, there's no arguing with that. Where you say you blocked me, you're a dumbass, and that it's just it's not the same thing. It doesn't work that way, and now you're spending weeks, you know, in this fruitless war with somebody else's IT people, and it really doesn't matter which one of you's right.
1: The technical challenge of running your own mail server, while it's gotten slightly more complicated, is still very tractable. It's basically getting your email to be delivered reliably is getting more and more impossible. And it's, it's like, remember how the internet's supposed to be this distributed thing that's hard to destroy? It turns out now we got like these five-walled gardens and outside of that, email doesn't really work properly anymore. Yeah, because email is supposed to be
0: the great leveler. It's supposed to be the ultimate distributed communication system, but it just isn't really feasible anymore. Although that does beg the question, why are you still running your own mail service, Jim?
2: Because I learned to a very long time ago, I really wanted to and it really mattered to me and I thought I could do it better than most of the big sites did. And frankly, I was correct about that. I still can. Google and Microsoft both still have very dubious practices in how they actually handle the mail, like accepting everything and sending bounces later is still pretty common um, in a a lot of the steps. It's big, it's cumbersome, it doesn't always deliver rapidly. Uh, When I run my own mail server, I know the second somebody sends an email to me, when it actually gets to my server, it will get delivered. If it doesn't get delivered, it will get bounced, not by delivery of, you know, a bounce message that my server sends. No, it will tell the other server during the SMT conversation, no, I'm not taking that crap. Which means that the user immediately gets a bounce notification. There's no Joe jobbing, you know, there's there's no uh, blowback, you know. Innocent's getting, getting murdered when a spammer uses their email address as the reply to, and now this other mail server is bombarding somebody with bounce messages for crap they didn't say. None of that happens. And that still happens, you know, at, at big organizations all over the place. There's all kinds of things they do badly. With that said, at this point, I have two clients who have their own mail servers. They've had a mail server that I run for forever. Both of those clients... I have been leaning on for several years now to go Office 365, purely because of the delivery issues. Um, it doesn't necessarily happen that frequently, but every few months, you know, they'll start doing business with a new client or a new, you know, peer, like two different subcontractors from the same general contractor, that kind of arrangement. And mail won't go through. And again, it just it ends up in this nasty bickering warfare of trying to convince somebody who barely even knows how they blocked a subnet to begin with, you know, that they've done it and they did it wrong and they need to undo it. And they're not really interested, a lot of the time I find, in fixing the problem. They're interested in making it so that they didn't do something wrong.
0: That sounds like a very long way of saying legacy reasons.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's not just legacy reasons. It's So my own email is on my own mail server, and that's partly legacy reasons and partly... Just I'm willing to deal with it, and it's it's still barely worth the trade-off for me. But for clients, it's not just legacy reasons. It's like I haven't been able to convince them to do something different reasons. Because I don't want to have to deal with all that crap anymore.
1: Yeah, for me, part of it is still about control and so on. And the rest of it is just momentum, right? I've already set it up and it's working. I'm not going to get rid of it. But for making money, that domain's got to be one of what other office 365 people can send mail to properly or get mail from properly anyway and so that for us is again office 365 what i find slightly concerning especially with google more than microsoft is google in general isn't really in the business of providing email like they have their reasons for why they want to host your email and for the bigger enterprise stuff they they do take some money now but I don't feel that they quite have the same direct connection as like what an email host would have had in the 90s. When Google decides to start blocking some medium-sized thing or a university from sending email to Gmail, there's no way as a customer of Google, you can get Google to stop doing that. You don't really have a lever against Google. Even if you're the customer who's paying Google for hosting your email and they're blocking emails you want to get, you don't have a lever to move Google because they're Google. I don't like the concentration of the power because I, you know, I'd rather there be some big email hosting company that I outsource to would be fine with me, but using a company whose main goal isn't running my email means I don't have the levers to make them do reasonable things and stop some of these insane practices that Google
2: has. Well, then, then you use Office 365 and that's your lever again because you get to say, dumbasses, you're blocking Microsoft. And even if you're Google... You have to respond to that.
1: Sure. But in this case, is how do I I don't have a very good lever against Microsoft when they're blocking something they shouldn't be blocking. Again,
2: <laughs> if it's Google, you do, because dumbasses you're blocking Google. None of this is something I like. I'm not arguing this is a great state of affairs, but realistically, this is why, you know, I, I'm saying I agree with his premise that you can't really replicate the experience, just the quality of life of Google hosted or Microsoft hosted email. It's just the quality part I disagree with. It's 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 the fact that if you're not the 900-pound gorilla, your life is going to be a lot harder than if you were. And if your email is hosted at Microsoft or Google when it comes to mail delivery, you're a 900-pound gorilla and you get treated that way.
1: Yeah, so I think I agree with Jim that if we just took Chris's original post and changed the word quality for deliverability, then
2: totally agree. Absolutely. And I would like to point out too that you know the issue here... It all comes down to the fucking spammers. Everything worked fine until email spam got to be such an enormous issue that it constituted more than 99.5% of all SMTP traffic on the internet. I think it may have died down some since then, but the only reason it's died down some since then is just again with, you know, how hard everybody has gone on trying to block it, but the constant warfare of trying to block bullshit email versus delivering good email, that's why you have to be a 900-pound gorilla.
0: What we need is a new messaging system built on blockchain.
2: No. What we need are laws against spamming that are actually enforced, and enforced vigorously. We've set up so many things and they all just end up being gormless and toothless and no agency has the appetite to actually do anything about them. I mean, even somebody like myself or Alan, there have been a couple of times that, you know, I've had somebody spam me and they pissed me off badly enough that, you know, I, I went after them. Uh, you know, when you get like this smaller spammer, there's like somebody, you know, spamming like literally they're just sending unsolicited email like, you know, from their outlook or whatever. I had a guy do that a while back looking to sell me something. I don't even remember some stupid crap. And he got real flippant with me when I told him, uh, you know, he's in violation of the CAN SPAM Act because he hadn't given me an unsubscribe. And he got real flippant and said, oh, well, I don't have to do that because I'm a human. It's not automated. So I don't have to. And I'm like, here's the text of the CAN SPAM Act you're liable for up to $15,000 per violation. You've sent me four of these now since I told you to stop. He's like, do you want that meeting or not? So then I pulled his corporate registration in Delaware and discovered that it had gone unpaid for three or four years, so he had no corporate veil to pierce. I said, by the way, here's the copy of your expired corporate registration that means there's no corporate veil, and if I hit you with these can-spam violations... It's going to be coming from your account personally. You could lose your house. And all of a sudden, his tone completely changed, and he no longer wanted to know when we were going to set up a meeting. (laughs) But the thing is, to make all that happen, this was me knowing everything about what email works, already knowing what the law was, being able to easily go find the law, interpret it, quote it chapter and verse – be willing to go pay 15 bucks to pull the tax records for his corporate registration and understand corporate law to know what, I mean, all of this crap, just to deal with this one asshole. And the reality is he wasn't even scared until like, you know, I I pulled his registration and told him, you know, I look into this and you got no corporate veil. Until then he wasn't even nervous because the reality is even with all that, it would have been very difficult for me to do anything because yes, he was absolutely in violation of the law, but I would have to have gotten an agency to actually enforce it and they fucking don't
0: okay this episode is sponsored by linode go to linode.com slash 25a to get started with a hundred dollars free credit from their award winning support offered 24 7 365 to every level of user to ease of use and setup it's clear why developers have been trusting linode for projects both big and small since 2003 Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com 25a Create a free account with your Google or GitHub account, or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's lino.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then, but first of all, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support if you want to learn more about it. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Mike has done. He says, you often talk about having the backup server be separate and pull backups from their live location. What is the best way to do this? Is there a tool you recommend? I can see how it could be done, especially with ZFS, by just catting a shell script into an SSH session with ports forwarded, back to the backup host, to do a Syncoid or other ZFS send and receive. But I feel like that is somewhat fragile and wouldn't scale well. What would your recommendations be? Particularly for potentially small shops or businesses who don't have a ton of manpower or money to throw at the problem. Well, doesn't Syncoid just take care of this without having to cat shell scripts into an SSH session?
2: Yeah, it absolutely does. It's as simple as on the backup server, you know, saying uh, Syncoid root at production pool slash data set, pool slash data set. And it, it goes off to the production machine and replicates the data, you know, back on into to, the backup. That's that's what a pull backup means. It's initiated by the backup server. And the only thing your production has to do is, you know, it has to have an SSH port available for the backup server to reach. That's it. It's just doing basically ZFS list and ZFS send on the production host, right? Yeah, on the production host. I think we're actually using a ZFS git with some arguments to get the list of them rather than list. But yeah, essentially it just boils down to it, it does that and it gets a list of all the snapshots, compares it with the local snapshots, figures out what's the most common, what's the most recent common and what's the most recent on the source and then it builds the replication commands from there, runs them through, gives you a nice progress bar if you're doing it interactive, adds, you know, compression along the wire if necessary, network buffering, all that, handles it all for you, but the syntax is every bit as simple as, you know, like a simple scp would be.
0: And do you have to have syncoid running on both ends then?
2: No, uh syncoid itself is not there's no daemon, there's nothing that's constantly running, it's literally just a command that you run. And you can run that command either on the production server to push a backup out to the backup, which is not what, you know, either Alan or I recommend for security reasons. Or you can run Syncoid on the backup to pull the backups from prod, which is what Alan and I typically recommend, again, for security reasons. Because when you get compromised. Your production is probably what's going to get compromised because you're doing all sorts of production stuff on it. And it's big and noisy and out there and, you know, humans are touching it and doing god-awful things to it. So that's going to be the thing that almost certainly gets owned. Your backup server, you know, whether you call it hot spare, disaster recovery, whatever, A, it should have far less attack service. It should be a lot less visible to attack, uh, you know, just inviting attackers. And, it's your last bastion. It's the thing that should fall last no matter what. If you haven't set your network up so that it is the hardest nut to crack, the most difficult thing to get to, you've done it wrong because it's the disaster recovery.
1: <laughs> yeah. And well, in particular, Syncoid doesn't even need to be installed on the production machine, right? The script only exists on the backup.
2: That's correct. The only thing that you need, the only thing that you have to have on the Let's just say the other, uh, you know, the remote machine. When you're when you're running Syncoid, you've got a local that you're running Syncoid on and you've got a remote. And the only thing that has to be on the remote is ZFS and SSH. You've got to have SSH to be able to connect to the other machine and you got to have ZFS or what the hell you're doing. It's not ZFS replication, whatever it is. You get more features if you've got some other common system utilities available on the other machine, like mBuffer to provide network buffering, LZO to provide over-the-wire compression if you need that, or GZIP if you prefer, or you know whichever compression algorithm you select. But all you've got to have on the other machine is SSH and ZFS. And so you've got to have the SSH key
0: with no password on the local machine?
2: Yeah, with an unlocked SSH keychain. Like If you've got an SSH agent that just automatically deals with that, that will be fine. But one way or another, you need to have it not interactively asking for a password when it's just running automated things with Syncoid. Yeah. To Mike's
1: question about it, uh, the best part about whether you use a tool like Syncoid or use ZREPL or uh, ZX for whatever of the many ZFS replication scripts is that they don't cost any money. Basically, the only money you need to throw at your backups here is the backup server, having having enough storage to store the backups and enough connectivity between your primary site and your backup site to copy the backups fast enough. And the manpower is generally set it up and I have some monitoring set up. So if my backup is ever more than 45 minutes behind live, I get an, uh, a notification from my Nagio saying, hey, replication is falling behind. Something might be broken. Yeah, you're not having to pay hefty license fees for software is what you're kind of getting at here. Right, and it's going to use less bandwidth than anything else. Like if you were comparing it to, say, rsync, uh, ZFS is going to do a lot better because it can do the compression, but also it
2: it only copies what actually changed. It doesn't have to frob everything to see what changed. To make that clear, because I know this is difficult for a lot of veteran rsync users to kind of wrap their heads around at first, what Alan is referring to... The actual network bandwidth used is not frequently a whole lot different between rsync and uh, a ZFS replication. Now, it certainly can be because the ZFS replication is block level, not file level, but it's frequently pretty similar. The difference is the storage load, because with rsync, you've got to grovel over every single block of the data on both sides to tokenize it and create checksums to figure out what's changed. And if you're talking about terabytes of data, I mean, it could literally be hours of running your storage system, you know, at full tilt on both ends before you can begin flinging a block down the wire. The contrast with ZFS replication is you don't need to do all that. You already know what's changed on a block by block level, and you can just immediately start chucking blocks down the wire without burying your storage system on either end with just useless reads trying to figure out what's there and analyze it.
1: Yeah, RSync basically has to stat every file and see if the date is different than the one on the other side. So it's statting on both sides. And then if a file is different, then it breaks down to like, yeah, let's read every chunk, check some on both sides, find, oh, there's a difference, break it down, all right, send the delta.
2: Nope, 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 you're not ready to send the delta yet, Alan. All right. <laughs> you, so first you stat every file and you look for changes in in the, uh, the size and or date. And then you've got to tokenize all the things that might be changed which means scanning them all through and generating checksums you know, for pieces of them. And then for anything which didn't look like it changed, you actually have to scan it through again and run a stricter checksum against those bits to make sure you didn't miss something due to hash collision from the first lower CPU requirement scan that you ran. And in general... Unless you're using in-place in rsync, you're
1: going to copy the entire file to a temporary file and stitch it back together with the changes, not overwrite it in place, so that if rsync breaks halfway, you don't end up with a file that's neither the new or the old. Whereas ZFS is just, hey, every block that's changed since this transaction group number, got it, boom, sending it over the wire at max wire speed.
0: Well, hopefully that answers your question, Mike, and happy new year, everyone else did you really think we were going to start with anything other than ZFS in 2022?
1: Boom! Setting
0: the year up for success. But with that, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions and feedback. You can find me on Twitter at
2: Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSnet.
1: And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.